we're really more alike than we are different. And, you know, where we are different, we need to appreciate it and respect it. You know, as, as the, the Swiss theologian said, have holy envy for, for those who are different than us. Uh, and, you know, I've lived my professional and personal life in Utah pretty much ever since and have had wonderful friendships with my brothers and sisters who are Latter-day Saints. And I, I attribute it to the experience of watching uh, those monks and their neighbors, uh, you know, find a way to, to uh, find a path to friendship together. I know for many of you, this may be your very first episode of The Cultural Hall, or maybe you're brand new. I would encourage you to take just a brief moment, and wherever you're getting this episode, if you are allowed to review the show, this episode, whatever you'd like, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you know, if, we, if it's a five-star thing, a four-star thing, we'll take that. Three stars, okay, you're neutral. If it's two or one star, there is enough negative things in the world. Just go ahead and keep that to yourself. Uh, give us a review. We would love to share that on a future episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I'm excited for this episode because it's not often on a Latter-day Saint-focused uh, you know, show that we have someone with the last name O'Brien, or certainly Patrick O'Brien, that uh, typically denotes someone of another faith. And that's, I think, where we're going to get into this morning. Michael Patrick O'Brien, welcome to The Cultural Hall. Great. I'm, I'm happy to be the first and hopefully the first of many, right? Well, I don't know that you're the first, but you are certainly the first O'Brien that we have had here in the Cultural Hall. Uh, let's talk roots. Where Where uh, is family from? Well, uh, originally County Limerick, Ireland, but during the, uh, the Great Hunger, the potato famine, they came over uh, to uh, eastern shores of the U.S. and ended up in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, my mom uh, uh, married uh, an Air Force uh, enlistee, and they traveled the world together and ended up in uh, Ogden, Utah, when he was assigned to Hill Air Force Base. And that's how I ended up in, in the Beehive State. And I think now people are starting to put together some pieces. They're like, okay, well, you know, being that he was from Ireland and then, you know, coming to the eastern United States, that doesn't make sense. But as you have resided in Utah is sort of where the story that I just hope that you'll, you'll kind of tell us picks up. Yes. No, I'd be happy to tell you the story. So we were, uh, you know, a family of uh, four kids um, and my parents. Uh, my father was a sergeant uh, on Hill Air Force Base. And I was about uh, nine years old when, unfortunately, their, their marriage ended. Uh, as the youngest in the family, uh, you know, certainly every child uh, receives news of divorce in a different way. But as the youngest, I was, I was pretty, pretty devastated, wondered what the world uh, was going to be ahead of us. And uh, uh, we had some pretty turbulent times. And in the middle of those turbulent times, my mother, who you know, came from a generation where they just liked to get out and drive in their cars, uh -huh. uh, gas was, you know, 30 cents a gallon, uh, you know, said one day, let's take a ride. And so we, we got in the car, my mother and my sister and I, and ended up in uh, near Huntsville, Utah. We saw a sign that said monastery, and we followed it and uh, ended up at uh, Abbey of the Holy Trinity in Huntsville. And their bookstore was open. Fortunately, we walked in and looked around, and there were a couple of monks, Trappist monks, who were tending to the store. And my mother was looking for a book, and she said to one of the monks, uh, you know, do you know what I'm looking for? And she sort of interrupted her before she finished her sentence and said, I, I do. You're looking for the same thing as the rest of us, peace. <laughs> and, uh, you know, to steal a line from uh, uh, Casablanca, right, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> um, uh, 
they uh, they sort of adopted us after that. We continued to go uh, up there several times a week. Uh, this is for me, roughly age eleven to twenty three, and uh, you know, pretty formative years. And they they took me under their wing. They sort of made me a boy monk. Uh, I worked in their bookstore on the on the on the farm. Uh, drove a tractor. Worked in the chicken coop, and they gave me friendship and support when I needed it the most. And uh, um, those were the formative years of, of my life and the, the formative years of the story I tell in, in the new book. So I want to ask a few questions because you said Trappist monk, and I'm not sure that I know what that is. Yes. So their their formal, formal name is Order of Cistercians of the Strict Observance, right? That's a mouthful. Uh-huh. Um, so they're... They're known as Cistercians. They were they were uh, founded near Citeaux, France, and that's how they got that name. Um, but uh, they're a thousand-year order, and uh, a few years after they were founded, um, uh, they, they went through some changes at a famous monastery near La Trappe, France, and that's how they earned the nickname Trappist monks. Uh, so it, you know, the name is is basically based on on uh, uh, where their particular brand of the order was founded. So when you talk about brand of the order, is it things like you know I'm I'm familiar, um, certainly different sects, but what immediately comes to mind is like when you we think of Amish people. Go with me here. I promise I'm going to land this plane. That there <laughs> that there are certain um, like certain like branches of of those who follow the Amish traditions who are like electricity is fine in this circumstance, but not this. Almost like uh, different branches of Christianity where we go, we ascribe to this, but not this thing. Is that what the different orders of monks? Is that how that yeah. works, or is it just from the location in which they originated? No, you're you're actually on on the right path there. You know, various uh, religious orders in the Catholic Church emerged for different reasons. So you've heard of Saint Francis and the Franciscans, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Francis wanted to live a life of, of poverty and service. Um, Saint Dominic started an order of preachers who wanted to spread the word of God, and Cistercians uh, and Trappists were focused on the monastic life of. Uh, following the Benedictine rule, you know their mo- their motto in Latin is "ora et labora," uh, prayer and work, and they they wanted to live a life uh, apart um, and chose as their uh, uh, their work uh, praying for all of us. Um, so you know different religious orders emerged for different reasons, and the the Trappists were uh, were set up with uh, that sort of contemplative purpose. Now, before that life changing sort of car ride with your mom, where you happened upon the monastery, were you guys pretty religious previously? Well, we were, you know, we're a good Irish Catholic family, right? Mm-hmm. We went to Mass every Sunday. Uh, my mom went to church, uh, went to daily Mass several days a week. Um, you know, we sort of uh, in- inherited that, uh, as many uh, of us do, uh, from, you know, our parents and grandparents. But uh, uh, we were fairly religious. I went to Catholic school for a year, um, right before the divorce happened. Uh, I wouldn't say we were, you know, religious fanatics in any sense of the word, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, religion was certainly at the center of our lives. And after the divorce, I think it became even more so for my mom. She was, a, a, a you know, a, as I mentioned, an Irish Catholic girl from New England mm-hmm. who didn't want to be anything other than a mother and a housewife. And uh, when the divorce hit, here she was thrust into the working world with nothing other than a high school education and sort of forced to take care of four kids without the proper training to do it. And and I think she turned to uh, her church and her religious life as a source of 
of uh, hope and inspiration and, and, and peace uh, in the middle of those turbulent times. You know, and people hear monastery in Utah or maybe even monastery in the United States and go, well, wait a minute. That's, you know, that's for Europe in the darkened caves and the, you know, these, these sort of things that <laughs> yes. media has ascribed it to be. No, 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 no. At the top of the mountain, beyond the next horizon, that's where the monastery lay. Uh, tell me what that <laughs> monastery looks like. Yeah, you sort of get a Monty Python and the Holy Grail image of, exactly. uh, of monks, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, so the, the Utah Monastery was founded in 1947, and it was an offshoot from a monastery in Kentucky uh, called the Abbey of Gethsemane, where a rather famous monk named Thomas Merton came from. Um, and after World War II, you know, as all these men who had experienced the horrors of, of that that cataclysmic uh uh, world event uh, came back. Uh, they were looking for uh, something better in their lives. You know, they they had been transformed by the the horrors of war, and many of them joined monasteries. And uh, Abbey of the Gethsemane in Kentucky was overflowing, mm-hmm. and they needed to do something. And they decided to start new monasteries elsewhere. Uh, and they they tend to start monasteries in places where you wouldn't expect it. Um, so uh, they went to. Uh, uh, Conyers, Georgia. They went to South Carolina, um, and they uh, bought 1,800 acres of land near Huntsville and and started Abbey of the Holy Trinity uh, in 1947 and sent 33 monks out on a train here to to try to uh, you know create a, a working farm out of uh, uh, ranch land up in the Ogden Valley. So that that's how they ended up here. You know the the, uh, the I refer to the Ogden Valley now as the Valley of Monks and Saints because. <laughs> They went into a very, very different place than than uh, 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 where they had been before, and and you know, I'm, I'm sure the the Ogden Valley residents were were quite surprised that suddenly they had a Trappist monastery in their backyard. How how much do you know about those early days, either from stories told to you or from what you've been able to research? How were they? Was you know, were these monks received in the Ogden Valley? And for people who don't know, uh, Huntsville is is by no means a big city. I mean, it's probably what twenty twenty five minutes from Ogden, which is the next biggest city, and and even Ogden isn't a huge city like Salt Lake or even you know Salt Lake County or Utah County. Yes, no, you're absolutely right, Huntsville at the time probably had a few hundred year-round residents. It mm-hmm. was mainly dairy farms and, and cattle farms. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting you ask about how they were received, because after I did my book about my own story with the monks, uh, I, I met a lot of people who told me, you know, you're not the only one who had amazing experience, <clears throat> experiences with those men. Um, you know, m- they saved my family, or I grew up in their backyard or whatever. And so I started interviewing ba- uh, Valley residents, people who lived in Huntsville, most of whom were Latter-day Saints. And, you know, the most amazing stories emerged from a situation that could have turned out much differently. Uh, you know, when, when the monks were founding the, uh, the abbey there, uh, the, the abbot, the leader of the monastery, who was going back and forth from Kentucky, would actually confide in Thomas Merton about his feelings as he would do these trips. And he expressed some rather anti-Latter-day uh, Saint uh, sentiments, hmm. talking about how, you know, he was in downtown Salt Lake, uh, moving, uh, driving towards Ogden, and saw the temple and w- said a prayer that it would fall down. Hmm. Um, and, you know, they, the monastery was uh, started there in the backyard of uh, President David O. McKay, who was a Huntsville native. Um, and uh, based on my research, uh, you know, he had made some comments at about that same time of, 
uh, fearing that the uh, the Antichrist was arriving in Utah. So there were some pretty negative sentiments uh, uh, on both sides, very wrong sentiments, of course, too, but very negative. And uh, so it could have been a very divisive situation. Uh, but, you know, the, the monks and their immediate neighbors just sort of got to know each other as neighbors, you know, the way we all do uh, when we move in uh, next to uh, uh, or into a new neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and they started to help each other and share equipment and share farm animals. And, and pretty soon these amazing friendships developed. Um, and it, it's actually a, 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 another book, uh, ironically, that I'm working on right now that I call In the Valley of the Monks and Saints that tells how you know, from those seeds of discord and, and, and uh, discontent, um, some amazing friendships developed. And, you know, the people who miss the monks now the most, because the monastery closed in 2017, are their Latter-day Saint neighbors who, yeah. who uh, came to love them the way you would uh, any other good neighbor. Well, and it's such a fascinating dive uh, for those that are listening to this and thinking, man, I can't wait for that next book to come out. When you look at uh, any other religion and the Latter-day Saints in the early parts of Utah, like I know there was also quite a bit with um, like the Catholic Diocese in Salt Lake and the headquarters of the church and also the... um, the Masons, the Masonic Lodge, and uh, the Latter-day Saints down in Salt Lake as well. And and to your point, you know, like the Antichrist moving to town, some pretty harsh words were said. I'm, I'm grateful that we live in a time where at least uh, openly as as it was then, you know, that those things are not being shared and those sentiments aren't being felt within. I want to take a break real quick, Mike, and when we come back, I want to uh, rewind back to when, you know, you're driving in the car with your mom, 11 years old, you find this bookstore open and what that impact was on you. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, if you are not yet a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, we encourage you to do so. Go to Patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. And with your pledge of as little as $5 a month, it allows us to continue to do these great episodes, to be able to do them with regularity and to have them sound as good as they do. So go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. It also allows you to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group where everyone's hanging out and having great conversations about this. So Mike, as, as you're an 11 year old, you're in the car with your mom and your sister, correct? You roll up to yeah. this, to this bookstore and you're, you know, the, the monk says, yeah, you're, you're looking for what everyone else is looking for. Peace. I remember my 11 year old self would have said, peace, blow it out your ear, monk, and not been so receptive. <laughs> but that sounds like that's not where you were. Well, you know, I, I may have been a little bit more like you than you suspect, right? Uh, um, yeah, I mean, you know, as an 11-year-old kid, I wasn't always, you know, thrilled to death that we were driving up to a monastery three days a week, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what made it really interesting for me was, uh, you know, 1,800 acres, uh, farmland, you know, Ogden kid, relative city kid. Um, and, you know, most importantly, the monks took an interest in me. So, 
you know, my mom would go up and, and sit in the chapel and listen to the monks chant and pray and meditate. And I was up there looking for adventures. Uh, you know, one of our first visits, I snuck off and and uh, uh, went through a unlocked door and explored their, their uh, cemetery, which was right next to the church. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I always got excited when uh, one of the monks would wave me down and, and uh, I would, you know, follow him around on the farm, uh, pretending to help in whatever he was doing. I don't think I added much to the efficiency <laughs> of the operation. Sure. But, you know, you know they, they certainly... They they took me in and and uh, you know talked to me about what they were doing and talked to me about whatever I wanted to talk about and and so you know the the place became attractive to me because I I found new friends there uh, and new adventures and so uh, you know it it wasn't uh, so much uh, the deep spiritual experience that you might expect from uh, an eleven year old who's hanging out in a monastery. What what kind of impact do you feel like that really had? I mean, that's that, like you mentioned, that pivotal time where mom's sort of wandering. And I'm assuming, based on how you've sort of shared the narrative, that dad at least wasn't around very much, if at all. So these these monks essentially become father figures. Yeah. You know, I, I think looking back, you know, 45 years later, uh, you know, and, and putting some meaning on, on all of those times, that's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, I was sort of lost, right? I, I didn't. My father wasn't around much. I was the youngest uh, in the family by far. I, my oldest, my closest sibling was six years older than me. You know, so they were they were teenagers and, and, and older. And who wants to hang out with your kid brother when you're a teenager? <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I was sort of sort of left alone and, uh, uh, you know, needed some direction, uh, needed somebody to to see me, uh, you know, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, and, you know, th- that's what they did was they saw me and they cared about me. Um, you know, it, it wasn't like, you know, I went up there and, and they sat me down and said, okay, Mike, it's time for monastic lesson 432. <laughs> you know, here's the Benedictine rule and, and please translate into Latin. It, it wasn't that sort of experience at all. It was, uh, as I mentioned, you know, I, I would, uh, you know, one of them would show up and say, did you ever drive a tractor? And I'd say no. And he'd say, well, let's go do it. And uh, you know, another time, uh, you know, imagine this scene, these veteran ranchers um, uh, pull me out of church uh, right when mass is over with on a Sunday morning and say, we've got a runaway calf. We need you to help us uh, retrieve. And, you know, I was game for it, even though I you know, had no roping skills and no riding skills. And, and they sent me off into a field to try to uh, uh, herd this uh, runaway calf back to where they wanted it to be. Uh, you know, I, I spent the next hour chasing that crazy calf around that field because they're a lot faster and a lot more clever than you might think finally did it. And, and, you know, they had me on the back afterwards, but, you know, you think back 45 years of, you know, why did they need a, a 12 year old kid to help them with that? So, you know, they, they just sort of took an interest in me. They, maybe I was a surrogate son to them. You know, these men who take vows not to marry and not to, uh, to have children. Maybe uh, I served a role for them about uh, you know, showing them what it, might be like to be a father as well, but they certainly uh, uh, took me under their wings at a time when I needed it most and, and cared about me. I think that's a, a really um, just great example of, of kind of being aware. Uh, you know, they they saw you there certainly, and they could have just ignored you, but very aware of being present. When I think of monks, I think that that's probably one of the greatest uh, places that they find peace is just being able to be present in the moment and being able to see everything that's going on. You mentioned that um, they didn't sit you down and go, here's a Benedictine lesson 432. But I bet uh, beyond this, like, 
you know, uh, look for those who you can kind of care for. You learned lessons, um, and and now being able to look back on it 45 years later can certainly kind of suss out some of those lessons. I would love to know uh, a, a very uh, a real lesson that you learned from from that time. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, sort of by osmosis, right? Yeah. Um, you know, well, one example is, you know, not exactly a happy example, uh, but death. Hmm. Right. So, you know, as, as a 12, 13 year old boy, you're you're sort of fascinated by death. You're not um, fully under aware of what it means um, uh, and you haven't seen it a lot. Um, and I, I witnessed it there. Right. There was a, a really old monk uh, at the time we were we started to go up there who a brother Ferdinand was his name from Germany. He was a tailor. Um, he was known for getting into trouble constantly. They had a rule of silence and he liked to talk. So so he. Uh, you know, he had his own share of penances to do from uh, from being a little too chatty. But while we were there, he, he passed away, and we were invited to attend his funeral. And a, a Trappist monk funeral is unlike anything you've ever seen in your life, right? They they, they didn't embalm him. Uh, they put him in his robes. The monks uh, spent uh, the night before they buried him uh, taking turns standing by his uh, his body. They laid his body out in the chapel. Um, and they prayed for him and said goodbye to their friend and brother who they had lived with for X number of years. And the next morning they, uh, you know, did a, a funeral mass and uh, carried him out. And they had dug a hole, uh, put his body right in the hole, covered his face with his uh, his hood and threw dirt on him. Wow. Um, and that was that. And, you know, I, I mean, I had been to, you know, more garish funerals, of course, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, in the outside world. But uh, it, 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 it was such a natural part of, of life for them, death. You know, they, they didn't dread it. They didn't, you know, wait for it and, and uh, hope for it, but they didn't dread it either. They welcomed it as a brother. And, you know, I, 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 that's, that impacted me. I know, I know it did. I, I, I'm not looking forward to death, but I think having seen that experience of, uh, of men who treat it as a natural part of life, I, I feel like I'm a little less afraid of it, and I think of it more as a transition Right. Life has changed, not ended uh, instead of, uh, you know, uh, some sort of dreadful thing that that happens to all of us. And and so, you know, through just observation, and I could give you many, many more examples, however many you want. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, you know, life at a monastery uh, uh, changed me, uh, hopefully in a positive way. I'll take one more. Give me one more. I thought that yeah. was fascinating. Well, one more uh, involves the vows that they took. Uh, so, you know, when you become a monk, you have to make five promises to your, your, your fellow monks, your brothers, and to God. Uh, and uh, I happened to watch on a couple of occasions when monks took their final vows and certainly, you know, had the occasion to read about what those vows were. Uh, and, you know, years later, again, when I'm, I'm analyzing how I've lived my life, uh, I, I realized that that created a pathway for me. I, I had to translate the vows, of course, mm-hmm. since I wasn't living in a monastery. But, um, for example, they take a vow of uh, stability, right, where they promise to stay at, at that monastery for the rest of their lives. And many of them j- did just that. They were there for 60 or 70 years. Mm. Well, what does that mean to me, to a, a non-monk? Well, I mean, stability, when translated, is, is about community, right, developing a community around you. Um, the monks take a vow of obedience. Uh, I didn't take a vow of obedience to a particular abbot, but if you translate the word obedience, it ultimately is based on um, the word to listen. 
Um, so it's important in life, I, I realized from that, to listen to other people. Uh, the monks take a vow of chastity, celibacy, and obviously as a father of three and a, a married man, I didn't take that particular vow. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean in, in the outside world? Well, celibacy is about devotion in your relationships, right? And you can be devoted in your relationships without being a monk. Uh, the monks take a vow of poverty. And, uh, you know, I live in Cottonwood Heights, Utah. I, I, I don't live a life of poverty like they did. Um, but Poverty, when translated to the outside world, can mean perhaps simplicity, trying to live a more simple life, yeah. uh, compassion. Uh, and then last, they, they take a vow called conversion of manners, which means that, that you know, in, in the middle of their community, they, they promise to try to learn about themselves and to grow and to change. Uh, and, boy, that's an important, uh, I think, principle of life, to be able to know who you are and to be willing to face the good, the bad, and the ugly, and try to change from it. So, you know, those five vows they took are not vows that I took, but I saw them take it, and I I, I realized that I I sort of, um, you know, they made an imprint on me, I guess, for lack of a better word, and I've found ways to try to translate and live similar vows uh, in, in my own life outside the monastery. You know, it strikes me as you were able to walk it out in your life. It's one of the things that I find so enriching about um, learning about other faith traditions um, and, and why, you know, why I was so welcome to have you uh, come and be able to share your experience uh, in the in the time that we have and the time that we still have uh, is because I feel like there's, there is so much value in learning how other people come at it. And like you said, right, you're not celibate, but you know, what does that mean? How can that translate? And what, and what can you take from, you know, that, that vow, that oath that um, these monks did? How can you apply that and be able to make your faith, make your walk uh, that much more enriched because of the experiences that you have? You, you Did you recognize as being that 11, I think you said to 23-year-old kid, did you recognize that probably most of your friends weren't hanging out at a monastery? And was there ever any sort of like, you're doing what? like some sort of shade or embarrassment thrown at you for for the things in which you participated in? Yeah, yeah, the holy roller, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, yes and no. Um, I, I think uh, there's a part of me that just thought it was really this cool experience. Um, you know, the, uh, the person who wrote—I I went to the University of Notre Dame for undergraduate, and the person who wrote my, uh, you know, recommendation letter to help get me in was the abbot of the monastery— and it just seemed totally normal to me to ask him to do it. But <laughs> I can bet when, you know, that letter arrived in, in South Bend, even, you know, South Bend, the Golden Dome, uh, Catholic Disneyland, you know, they they were a little surprised to see an abbot of a monastery writing a letter. So, you know, I, I wasn't always perceptive uh, to, you know, how different it was. But there were times when I was as well. In, in high school, I didn't go up quite as often, you know, because— you know, I mean, it's not exactly cool, right, to be hanging around monks in a monastery. And, you know, I, I was also very busy. But, you know, I think I did have, a, you know, a certain uh, uh, sense of self-consciousness from being perceived as the holy roller and doing it too often. But I, I, I did still go. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, college, I went away for four years. And so uh, much of the time I was communicating with them by letter. Um, but I would go back during the summertime and go up and visit them and, and, and work with them in the summer, including doing a, a retreat uh, after I graduated there, a three-day retreat after I graduated from college. So, you know, it's sort of a yes and no answer. I, mm-hmm. I, I 
there was a part of me that was completely oblivious to this really cool life I was living and a part of me that was acutely self-conscious of it. And, uh, you know, pretty interesting contradiction there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And and then also there's this whole other aspect because you're an Irish Catholic going to a monastery and living among the saints. And so maybe uh, as we take a break and we look toward the third block of the cultural hall, I want to talk about what that experience was like uh, being among the saints and some of the interactions and, and, you know, for both good and bad that you may have had over your time being here in Utah. We'll come back and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops with breaking news. Windows 11 is now here. It's fast, it's beautiful, and it's super secure. So let's make sure your computer is ready to run it. If your computer isn't powerful enough, we'll show you what you need to upgrade in your old computer to make it run perfectly. If we can't upgrade your old PC to run Windows 11, we'll buy it from you and give you a credit towards any new PC laptop's computer. Now, our computer started only $29 a month and we have 12 months special financing. Windows 11 is simply awesome. Bring your old computer into PC laptops right now because at PC Laptops, we really love you. PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, uh, be sure you find the Cultural Hall back row on Facebook. It is a free group that you can be a part of. Now over 230 members strong. Would love to have you uh, ask to join that group. That's all you have to do. Then we allow you in and we have fun tangential conversations oftentimes that have nothing to do with the episodes that we share here. Find it, the cultural hall back row. Mike, uh, so being in Utah and not being a Latter-day Saint is an experience of its own. Uh, being a kid that, you know, from 11 on is hanging out in a monastery two, three, four times a week, that makes a unique experience as well. What was your interaction uh, with the saints there, either in the Ogden Valley or, you know, in the city of Ogden? Well, uh, so I've, I've spent uh, my entire life in Utah. I, I was born in France. You know, we were an Air Force family, and I was um, the tail end of that. And, and at the time I was born, my father was assigned to work uh, at a weather station near uh, Orléans, France. But our next assignment was Hill Air Force Base, and that brought us all to Utah. And, uh, you know, th- there's sort of two phases to that, because for uh, a couple of those years, we were living on the base. And, you know, the, the base is a very diverse place, you know, ethnically, ethnically, religiously, um, you know, because so many people from so many different places are there. Um, but when I was probably in about third grade, we, we moved to Clearfield near, near Hill Air Force Base. And I started to go to uh, uh, public school there. Um, and uh, you know, that, that was probably my first experience with uh, the fact that, uh, you know, I was in a distinct minority uh, religiously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was certainly aware of it. You know, I, I would notice it. Uh, I don't. I don't. You know, call it uh, willful segregation, but sort of this unintended segregation because, you know, there was uh, people would talk about uh, you know primary or or you know uh, 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 you know their service to the church, and it was it was all something I wasn't familiar with um, in 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 any sense of the word, and it wasn't that I was ever intentionally excluded, uh, but. Um, you know, there was a common conversation, a common language that I wasn't always familiar with, um, and I had to become familiar with. 
Um, you know, so there there were certainly feelings of being you know, in the minority uh, in, in uh, an outsider status. Um, but you know, I have to say, unlike many people, uh, I never uh, felt uh, outright uh, discrimination or bias or uh, ostracized. Uh, I was never ostracized mm-hmm. um, because of my religion. I, I think it was a matter of, of curiosity. People would ask me. Um, you know, people would want to know, especially if they found that I was going to a monastery. They would they would ask questions. So you know, I, I had feelings of being an outsider without ever sort of being, you know, thrown out the door and having the, the door slammed behind me. Um, it was actually up in Huntsville uh, that I learned, uh, uh, I think, what is the appropriate way to, to engage in interfaith dialogue, uh, which is just to be who you are and accept your neighbor as they are, because that's what the monks did, and that's what their, their Latter-day Saint neighbors in Huntsville did, too, as I've mentioned. Uh, you know, from my research, I've, I've found some fascinating stories of uh, when they arrived, you know, their their neighbor just to the south sort of vouched for them, and it turned out he was the bishop of the local ward. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of people were sort of critical of him because he was making friends with the monks instead of converting them. Uh, and they asked him that very question, why aren't you converting them? And, you know, he said, hey, these are, these are men who are just uh, trying to live a good life. Uh, they work hard. Uh, they They never... Uh, do anything negative for anybody in the valley. They're there to help anybody who needs their help. And he said, you know, if I didn't have to give up my wife and, and child or children, I would I would join that monastery. <laughs> that's what the LDS bishop said uh, about the monks, and that sort of changed the tide. And p- other people got to know them, and um, you know, the Relief Society would be there uh, to uh, support them if there was a funeral. The Relief Society would bring up food and tables for a reception afterwards. When one of the monks was uh, ordained a priest or took final vows, the local ward would, would sponsor a, an event for them. Uh, one of the monks was pretty well known for going around and speaking at the funerals in the ward house of his friends hmm. who he had met uh, uh, up there in the valley. And, you know, perhaps my favorite story is, uh, you know, one monk uh, bought and sold calves with a neighbor, uh, and they were Latter-day Saints, and got to be very good friends, and they would talk about their lives. And, uh, you know, the, the neighbor mentioned how they were having trouble uh, paying for the mission of their son, their oldest son. And one day the monk shows up in his truck and, and says, hey, there's a problem with the calves you just sold me. And the neighbor was very worried that, you know, he, he had offended his best customers. And the monk said to him, yeah, you know, these calves were a lot better than you had told me. And so we owe you more money. Hmm. And he handed him a, a, an envelope full of $100 bills and drove off. And it was his way of helping to pay for his uh, friend's uh, mission. Wow. Uh, I get, I get kind of teary-eyed when I tell this story. And you know what? That, that young man went on his mission, and when he came back, he named his first son after that monk. Huh. Um, and that's the sort of uh, friendships that developed. You know, the, I mean, two groups of people uh, taking the admonition, love thy neighbor as thyself, to heart. And I saw that. I saw, you know, I didn't see all of that at the time, but I saw elements of that. Um, and, and I realized, you know, we're really more alike than we are different. And, you know, where we are different, we need to appreciate it and respect it. You know, as, as the, the Swiss theologian said, have holy envy for, for those who are different than us. Uh, and, you know, I've lived my professional and personal life in Utah pretty much ever since and have had 
wonderful friendships with my brothers and sisters who are Latter-day Saints. And I, I attribute it to the experience of watching uh, those monks and their neighbors, uh, you know, find a way to, to uh, find a path to friendship together. I find that to be pretty inspiring when you consider, you know, it, it's a time not like today that it's, you know, this is years and years ago, but to see the collaboration and the interfaith work and the, and, and, and if we're just calling it one thing, the love that people have for other people, right? It wasn't, oh, that's a monk and I need to love him this way, or that's a Latter-day Saint and I need to love him this way. It was just like, that's a person and we're looking out for each other. Count, counter um, that to your experience, you you said that you live in, in Cottonwood Heights, which for people not from Utah, it's essentially Salt Lake. It's a suburb of Salt Lake. Uh, do you find the connection between uh, other faiths and the Latter-day Saint faith in, in that particular area, whether that be specifically Cottonwood Heights or just even in the city itself, to be the same sort of feeling? And if not, why? Well, great question. And, uh, you know, as, as I'm a lawyer by trade, so I'll give you a lawyerly answer, right? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes and no. It depends. Um, it depends on where you're at. Uh, you know, I still hear stories today of, of people um you know, segregating themselves or others uh, based on religion. Um, and a lot of it comes from us Catholics, right? A lot of Catholics here in Utah grow up in what I call the Catholic ghetto, um, you know, where they hang out with Catholics. They they only, uh, you know, do things with Catholics. They go to Catholic school uh, and only occasionally interact with, with people different from them and, and often have rather negative points of view towards others. So that Unfortunately, that that uh, negative spirit is still alive, but it's not always that way. My own parish, uh, St. Thomas More Catholic Parish, is right next to uh, a Latter-day Saint uh, church, and there's a wonderful relationship between those two churches. They do social service projects together. Every year at Christmas, uh, our choir goes and sings at the ward house, and their choir comes and sings at uh, at our church. They do uh, concerts together. Our priest has a wonderful relationship with the local bishop. So, you know, it, it depends on the person and the place, and, and you still see stories of people building walls rather than building bridges. Um, but you also see wonderful examples of people not only building bridges to each other, but walking across them frequently. So you've written this book. It's called Monastery Mornings, My Unusual Boyhood Among the Saints and Monks. And I know that that uh, a lot of times in the writing of a book, it's a labor of love because it's a whole lot of labor. And maybe, maybe you start to make some money off it as people are able to pick it up and if it becomes popular that way. But it's often not the money that drives people to share these types of stories. What What's the reason for you? Well, yeah, great question. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to get rich and retire off of this book, um, uh, but that doesn't mean it's not important, uh, right, or worth uh-huh. doing. Uh, and so when I learned uh, probably about uh, 10 years ago, uh, five to 10 years ago, that the monastery was going to close, which it did in 2017, um, I was really concerned that um, the experience that I had of sort of just stumbling across, upon a place that changed your life would would end right i mean and again as i mentioned i wasn't the only person who stumbled upon that place and fell in love with it but with it closed and with the monks uh, moving away um that opportunity was was fast disappearing and i I wanted others to have that experience uh, if that makes sense and and so the book is an attempt to sort of give others the opportunity to have that experience vicariously 
Um, I wanted my friends the most to be remembered. These are very, very modest men, uh, you know, who, who don't toot their own horn, who, who wouldn't ever tell their own story. But it's a wonderful story uh, of uh, uh, hard work and love and, and, and care uh, and devotion that should be told and they should be remembered. So I very much wanted them to be remembered. And I fortunately had a story I could use as a vehicle for doing it. Um, so that was another reason for writing the book. Uh, and then a, a third reason was, you know, you may have heard if you've read the newspaper or uh, watched television that the Catholic Church the last few years has been embroiled in its own ugly little scandal, yeah. um, the child abuse scandal, which was uh, devastating, uh, you know, to uh, a lifelong Catholic like me. Even more devastating was the fact that so many uh, bishops covered it up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what I refer to as the the uh, uh, predators and the cover-up bishops, the bad shepherds, if you will. Yeah. Um, so I, I was angry. Um, and I learned the monastery was closing at the same time I was trying to work through my anger about this scandal and the way uh, that a you know, small minority of, of Catholic priests and bishops had mistreated people. So the book became a form of spiritual therapy for me because uh, I almost left you know, my church because of the scandal. And as I was working my way through it, I realized I had to sort of go backwards in order to go forward. I had to go backwards to the church that I loved to reconcile that with the church I was living in now that I, I had really strong negative feelings for. Um, so the book, uh, in addition to you know helping remember the monks, was an opportunity for me to sort of work through all those feelings and now all you poor folks get subjected to uh, <laughs> to my uh, agonized musings uh, when you read the book. I, I think it's uh, it's beautiful what you just said as you kind of work these things out and and also a pretty vulnerable view to recognize. Hey, you know what? There was a time that uh, that my faith was challenged and and we hear this a lot within uh, the Latter Day Saint tradition, right? As people uh, either you know grow in experiences or they learn different things sometimes their faith can be challenged and and your wisdom is to go back to the church that they love and then kind of walk it to the church that they're in today I think that that that's really a, a valuable lesson. I appreciate you sharing that. I am curious, however, uh, as we wrap this thing out, you've written this book, uh, just like picking a favorite child. Is there one lesson or one story that if we le- learn nothing else, from you, from this book, that you would hope that we would walk away with? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, there is. Um, I call it the wisdom of the desert, right? Okay. Um, you know, there's there's a famous book that you may have heard of about the first monks that's called that, the wisdom of the desert. Um, and it uh, includes sort of these sayings that were collected about these men who, you know, who, like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, in fact, did go to the top of the mountain in the cave and, and isolated themselves from, from the world. And, you know, I, I think the overall lesson for me is that, um, you know, never be surprised about how much wisdom can come from unexpected places. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't go to the monastery expecting um, it to be a place of, of, of great wisdom. But as I've, you know, told you in my stories, and as I've read more about what some of these monks have said and written themselves, um, there are these precious gems that I think are, are uh, important uh, to all of us. And, and one of them is, uh, you know, uh, one of the monks from Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, he was studying to become a doctor and decided to become a monk instead. He was one of the first ones to go up there. Wow. And he ended up uh, running their cattle operation. 
Um, his name is uh, uh, Nicholas, Brother Nicholas Prinster, and a lot of people know him as Brother Nick. He built clocks for people. But he also wrote eulogies for his family members when they died. And I just want to share two things that he wrote because I think they're so uh, – they spoke to me about you know, the wisdom that comes from uh, spending your life thinking about things like he did. Um, and one of the things that he wrote was you know, uh, talking about the difficulty of, of being a human being. And he, and he wrote – and this is a quote – it's not a simple thing to be a human being. We all have many persons inside of us. Who is the real person? They all are, right? What a beautiful thought yeah. know, to, to accept you know, the sort of inner conflicts we all have and to say that's all part of being alive, of being human. And then one other thing he wrote, and I'll, I'll uh, 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 end on this note, was you know, the, 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 the beauty and, and, and the, the, the fact that it's okay to struggle, right? He wrote, uh, Brother Nicholas wrote, we are all of us broken. Uh, we live by mending. And the glue that we are mended with is the grace of God. And what is the grace of God but love? Hmm. So, you know, I, I guess, you know, the, 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 the favorite, uh, you know, I would take away from all of this is, is you know, I, I went up there as a kid looking for adventures, you know, having fun driving a tractor and, and running around the chicken coop. And, and I emerged from it with this incredible treasure trove of wisdom I didn't expect to receive. Um, it's truly a blessing and a grace, and, uh, you know, it, it can happen to anybody in any place. It doesn't have to be a monastery. Just yeah. be open to the wisdom you can learn from other people and other places um, uh, who are also out there like us trying to think about and understand all of this stuff. I love it. Great words to end on. There are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, and uh, I'll ask those of you right now. They'll be changed a little bit because normally uh, are for the Latter-day Saint tradition, but do you have a calling or a responsibility in your parish currently? And if so, what um, is it? I, I, I do. I do have a, have a calling. Um, I'm, uh, I'm helping to uh, uh, put together the, uh, the history of the parish along with uh, my friend who's an archivist, um, and uh, the parish will turn, uh, just turn 40 and will turn 50 in 10 years, and we're, we're putting together the, the story of that community. That's awesome. If you could pick a job or responsibility within uh, your particular uh, church or, or parish, what would you pick? Uh, you know, I, I love to write. Uh, I love to share, uh, you know, the wisdom uh, that I've received largely from others and I, I think my designated job would be resident sage if I could uh, <laughs> if I could get it right sit in the corner and just spout all the intelligent things that other people have said that I was lucky enough to hear uh, the final question we ask everyone and and you may interpret it however you may but the question is is what is your favorite part of your faith uh, I, I I stay a Catholic because at its core, the message of uh, the Catholic religion and any good religion, and I would include uh, that uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in this, the message is love. Mm -hmm. um, and when you, when you strip away everything else and boil it down, the message is love, that we have to love God and love each other. And if more people did that, then the world would be uh, uh, swept away in a, in a wave of uh, religious uh, revival. It's all about love. 
The book is called Monastery Mornings, My Unusual Boyhood Among the Saints and Monks. Uh, The author, Michael Patrick O'Brien, has joined us. Uh, We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat.